Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast analysing the third test between India and England. And there's so many moving pieces to this. You have the day-night test match, you have the pitch, you have the scale of the, the Indian victory, you have the complete disintegration of the England batting lineup. And so there's so many different pieces that actually trying to sort of analyse it collectively is quite difficult. You've had three test matches so far that have been blowouts. England winning the first test unexpectedly. You know, that was not... You know, there was a sense coming into this from, from an English perspective that, you know, they'd done well to win out in Sri Lanka, but it was relatively, you know, it's a relatively inexperienced team. You know, their spinners aren't, you know, weren't in fantastic form, you know, and the batting lineup was inexperienced in Asian conditions. So the expectation was is that India would win fairly comfortably. Now to have won the first test match then suddenly changed the expectations. Suddenly England then were two victories away from get being in the World Test Championship final, the inaugural one at Lords in June versus New Zealand. And coming into this tour, the expectation was that if England were going to do well in one test match, it was going to be the third test match, the day-night test match, where it was mo- more than likely that there would be some swing. There would be something for the England seam bowlers that would give them an opportunity to possibly get a result. So now when you came into it with a 1-0 lead, all possibilities were open. Now... The second test match, what I would say is the pitch for the first test match was, so far, was the, the best cricketing pitch. There was you know, high scores, there was you know, options for the seamers, there were options for the spin bowlers. And really what happens, and I think this is, you know, it's true of all test match cricket to an extent that the toss has some major implications but when you get an Indian pitch like the first test match what you have was if you win the the toss and bat and put a score everything therefore starts to fall into place it becomes a lot harder for the the team batting second because they don't have to bat fourth and I think that there was you know looking from after the test match the sort of comments that Virat Kohli made the Indian captain was very much suggesting that you know they weren't happy with the groundsman they weren't happy with what the the pitch had done whether it had been the same story had india batted first put up 500 and won the test match who knows but there was a clear sense that for the second test match the pitch was different it took spin a lot earlier and when you have that kind of a situation it is really playing into you know india's hands that's that's their skill set they can you know, bat big they can spin the ball. They, you know, their seam bowling has definitely improved. Their the quality of the fast bowlers has improved. But generally, if you were to sketch out how India want to win a test match at home, generally speaking, the, the principle would be you win the toss, you bat first, you score you know, four, five, six hundred runs. You then put the opposition under a huge amount of pressure. So either they're going to try and match your score, which will take so much time out of the game that the loss pretty much takes care of itself. 
you're not going to lose the game. You might draw the game. If they don't, you know, they don't get within 200 runs, you have the follow-on, and so then suddenly you open up the opportunity for an innings victory. If they come within 200 runs, you then still have the advantage. You can, you know, basically you know, get some quick-fire runs, leave the opposition needing 400, 450, and or having to bat out two days on a pitch that's only going to get worse. It's only going to bring in, you know, the spin bowling. And so then suddenly, you know, India have a stranglehold over the game. Now, when you have a pitch like the second test match, which did a lot more than the first pitch, you know, there was more spin. The idea is even if, let's say, you lose the toss and, you know, England bat first, even if they put 400 when the batting is at its best when the pitch is you know hasn't deteriorated the difference is, is that the the level and skill that the indian batsmen have is that you know england probably won't get as high a score so let's say maybe india would have got 450 england might get 375 so then you know even if india are batting second the difference is is that although the pitch is not as easy to bat on, you can make up the difference. This, In other words, England, England haven't put a high enough score on it to put you in trouble. You can get either within that score or leave England without too much of a lead. And that's really what sort of took place. You know, India put up a score, England didn't get within 100 runs of it, and from then on, the Test match was pretty much a foregone conclusion. It was never going to get to a stage where England were ever going to be able to score enough runs on that pitch to you know, make up the 100-run difference from the first innings. At which point, you would then had a fourth-day pitch where England were going to have to chase down 400. It was never going to happen, nor were they going to bat out two days. So it's one all. You then have the third test match, which is really where England were effectively the banking. You know, this was the one that they would potentially have an advantage. And really what the English media are saying in the aftermath is is that England made a you know, fundamentally incorrect selectorial decision. In other words, in leaving just you know, one frontline spinner with Joe Root as kind of a backup option, as a part-time spinner, and just going out with three fast bowlers plus Ben Stokes, that it was a flawed reading of the pitch, the ball, and the conditions for the day-night test, and that they were resoundingly thrashed by a superior England Indian side. You know that the batting lineup, you know, for England has a lack of technique and application against high-quality spin in Asian conditions, and for the most part, this analysis isn't fundamentally incorrect, but it really lacks nuance. You know. For England to have dominated the first test match wire-to-wire -wire against an Indian team coming off their most dazzling and unlikely test series victory against Australia. I mean, historically, Asian teams, so that's, you know, Sri Lanka, Pakistan and India, have come to Australia, have been, most more often than not, ritualistically hammered. You know, occasionally there'd be a draw in one of the test matches. You might even have the occasional away, you know, victory, but it would be... 3-1, 4-1. You just generally never seem to be able to cope with the Australian fast bowlers, the Australian pitches, and there was, you know, an, there was no confidence that 
really that with the way how test match cricket was developing in the sort of 21st century where away wins were becoming increasingly rare that that was going to change anytime soon and for India now to have won two test match series in Australia back to back is really an incredible one especially when you factor the second one is with Covid with a bubble, with India having multiple injuries, losing their captain for the last three test matches, for losing the first test match to Australia, having been bowled out for a ridiculously low total. And the fact is that you, when you look at this you know, Indian side, it, it's, so, it's highly experienced. You've got the mainstays, you've got Kohli, you've got Rohit Sharma, you've got Ajinka Rahane, you've got Ishant Sharma. You got Ravi Chandwin Ashwin. And yet at the same time it's also an emerging team. You've got, you know, Shubnam Gill, you've got Rispar Pant, you've got Washington Sundar, Axar Patel. You know, even Jasper Brummer has made the, the jump from T twenty cricket into, you know, test match cricket. And it just reveals such a, a huge level of depth in both the spin and the seam bowling. And it's also now, you know, with the, I suppose, you've, you're seeing the creation, really, of an Indian developmental process. So now suddenly you're getting, you know, spinners and fast bowlers who can also bat. It mean, doesn't mean that necessarily the greatest batsmen, they're not, you're not quite all-rounders, but... When they do get in, they are capable of hitting sixes. They are capable of getting quick scores. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Which then suddenly means that whereby, you know, traditionally when you were playing India, the argument was is that you got the top six and then, you know, pretty much once you got into the tail, there wasn't much there. Now suddenly you have a problem where you could literally have India six down and they can still then add sort of two hundred runs from the you know the lower middle order and the tail end batting and do it quickly, which can really, you know, really change the way how a test match and how a narrative and how the fans, how the media and how the opposition deal with that. And the fact is that they've been utterly dominant in home conditions for pretty much nigh on a decade. I mean the thing is, and this is gonna be a recurrent theme in this podcast India are primed to dominate Test cricket both home and away. All of the weaknesses that used to plague India away from home in terms of not having enough fast bowling, not being able to cope with you know, bouncers, you know, not having experience in, in foreign conditions, that's all slowly starting to dissipate. And I think when it comes down to it, when... England have problems in the subcontinent dealing with sort of you know spinning wickets is it plays into a general public perception regarding sort of proper batting the idea is is that somehow in sort of the modern world with T20 with you know iPads that your attention span of the modern player has been really negated and that there's, you know, they just don't have the application to get in. So it's, I call it boycottism. It's, ah, uh, well, Jeffrey would have been able to have dealt with that situation. And what you now have is really 
how do you separate all the different strands of this test match? That it was done so quickly, that there was you know, that there are question marks over the pitches. I, I think that you you really have to look at it from, I suppose, the Indian perspective. I see the way how they have approached this test series as being they are desperate to be in the World Test Championship final. And that the second that they lost that first test match, that meant that realistically they were going to have to win sort of 3-1, that they then decided that they were going to go all out. And so it makes the original analysis that, you know, that it was a terrible selection decision from England. And that, you know, England lineup has a lack of technique and application. I think to an extent this analysis is flawed. Because really you're ignoring the fact that you're not asking the question of well, why have India made such extravagantly spinning wickets? I mean, the second one spun quite a bit, but the third absolutely massively. So you've end you've had a test match end in two days. And the thing is, this is a relatively callow England team, I mean, especially in the the batting stocks. You know, Zach Crawley. Dom Sibley, the, the beginning of their test careers. This is, you know, their only their second tour of the, the subcontinent. And, you know, both of them had had noticeable struggles in Sri Lanka. So it's not as if that they were coming in with any level of dominance or experience. You know, you've had Ollie Pope hand play for months and months and months because he had a, a major shoulder injury. And also, that was this is his first ever you know, tour of the subcontinent. You know, you've had Rory Burns coming back from injury. He's coming back from paternity leave. He hadn't played for months either. And so suddenly you're thinking, well, you know, folks, Ben Folks, the wicketkeeper, he hadn't played for several months. And so if you're thinking about that, did I suppose there's a question of did India have to go to that extent? You know, could you basically have could they have carried on with you know similar pitches to the first test and just basically thrown it off as being a bit of a one-off? That India had a bit of a hangover from the Australia series. England were better prepared than you know, usual for a you know four-test match series in India. In other words, instead of having you know tour matches, which and let's face it, tour matches aren't the same as they were a generation ago. You. Know, you all you do is you make the wicket completely different to the one they're going to face in the test match and you put out some pony opposition knowing that if the touring team yeah, the away side wins handsomely it's because they were playing rubbish if they don't do very well that gives you even more confidence because actually they've just basically struggled to beat the the fourth 11 the fifth 11 and hardly are they going to then go ahead and improve radically within you know the space of a week Whereby, if you played in Sri Lanka, you've at least had, you know, similar. You're dealing with the heat. You're dealing with the spin. So it's you're at least slightly better prepared. But even then, if you look at the England batting lineup, as I've just said, they weren't fully in that position. There were several players that were coming off hand played for particularly long. You had Moeen in the same bracket, and you know, with Josh Butler going home, he was only available for you know one Test match. And even if you look at the spinners, you know, Jack Leach has had major injury problems and barely played for months. You know, and Don Bess is, you know, 
young and he's doing pretty well considering, but again, he's not played a huge amount of you know, test match cricket, and this is really going to be his you know first proper test as you know playing in India. Mm. And if you then compare it really, because you've got the mental fatigue of the bubble, you have the rotation policies, and there was a lot of you know controversy when you know Maureen you know went home for his scheduled rest, and the way how the England you know management and Joe Root accidentally basically created a media controversy by you know implying that Maureen had decided of his own free will that he didn't want to stay out there any longer when that wasn't the case it really was you know if they if he wanted to have stayed that was an option but it certainly wasn't a case of him abandoning you know he's been in Sri Lanka he was then basically found to be positive with covid so he's had two plus weeks trapped in a hotel room on his own you know, he's then, you know, only just made, had one test appearance. You can't blame the person for wanting to go home to his young family, not at all. But if you compare the England side that is now playing India with the last test team, England test team that toured in 2016-17, there's far more experience in that side. You've had Alistair Cook, you know, who had an absolutely brilliant record in, you know, Asian conditions, you still you had you know Moeen was a lot more in form. You had Rashid. There was far more you know I think experience. And you then look at it. The fact is that the previous tour to that England had won. So I think that team generally had more likelihood of being able to put India under pressure. And if you look at the first Test match in that series. England had India six down and you know, nearly won that test match, but then went on to lose the remaining, the rest of the series. So it's not without presence that England could, in a one test match situation, give India a bit of a game. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they were going to you know, carry that on and be able to win three or four on the bounce. And so, to, to go back to really what the English media are saying, I, I don't think hammering the England team right now is particularly valid. You, know, you have to ask yourself, is this a, a England team at the end of its journey? Is this one where basically you've got three or four players who are close to you know, retiring? Is it a team where you've, they've seen better days? No, I think it's far closer to the beginning. You can clearly see that they've got some good spin options. They have some young fast bowlers coming through. Yes, they're still a little bit reliant on Anderson and Broad, but not to the extent that you feel that, you know, much in the same way that with, let's say, Sri Lanka, when, you know, Sankara left, you know, when Rangon Haraf retired, that there wasn't really, you know, replacements for them. You can see an England team, you know, with Joffrey Archer leading the line. You've got Ollie Stone, you've got Mark Wood. You know, there are players in in and around the setup that seems to augur that you know England aren't going to be completely bereft if one or both of them retires within the next sort of twelve to eighteen months. And you, is it really failure if you got to the point where England were two wins away from reaching the World Test Championship finals in the age of COVID in a situation where they've won? 
you know, they had won six test matches in a row away from home for the first time, you know, in a century. You'd had a situation where, you know, they'd won last year against, you know, Pakistan at home, they won against West Indies at home, they you know, the one day team is still, you know, is world champions, and the T twenty team, you know, got to the final the last time the T twenty World Cup was played. Generally speaking, England are in a fairly positive place. You know, at the moment with Joe Root is getting better by the game. They're well coached in you know, they're not making the same mistakes that the Bayliss and England team made when you know they weren't hitting getting to 400 and they were getting you know bowled out for a regular basis for under 100 and didn't seem to have you know a philosophy and a tactical plan that was actually coherent and you know workable for test match cricket it worked brilliantly well one day but not in the test matches you know, you're playing a fantastic indian team who are probably, you know, if not reaching their peak, they're close to it with the depth they've got, with the style of cricket they play. They've rooted out all of the problems that you would say would had stopped India previously. When you know India did really well, there was always generally something lacking. In other words, you know, when they had, you know, Shaywag, when they had Saywag, when they had Rahul Dravid, Tendulkar, it was there was a lot of yeah, Sora Ganguly, there was always that sense that a lot of it was the batting and the bowling was good but not quite at the same level. And it really you know the the batting lineup was the engine behind the success, whereby now I where do you see the weakness in the current Indian test team? It's you might say that, you know, Pan isn't necessarily the most consistent wicket keeper, but some of the catches that he's made, some of the stumpings that he's made, you know, there's a sense that he could get better, but even if that was the case, you do have defensive wicket keepers and you could still then just put Pan in as a batsman on his own merits in that regards so it's really you do have those options there are people who you know you know Washington Sundar could potentially become an all-rounder you know there is just so much you know positivity and really they can go as far as they want to really in test cricket that's my own personal view of things so for this England team that is still working towards greatness. I think being third or fourth in the world at the moment in terms of ranking, in terms of going for the te- World Test Championship, is you know is positive, and I think they can get better. But I don't think they're fully there yet. Which I think, really what I want to do is almost now sort of get a little bit more for the a background sort of to before you go into a real sort of in-depth analysis of sort of play-by-play of this test match and I think one of the fascinating elements that I love about test match cricket is that in that it's a continuing act that you have five days for it it is you have no other sport I think that is 
you know, ball related, that has a ball at its centre. I mean, with things like sailing, there are multiple days, but I think for when you focus just purely on team sports and that have a ball involved, I don't think there are many other frontline world sports where the game lasts for five days as a you know, singular game. You know, you can have a seven-game World Series, but that is seven individual games, and then it's, you know, best of, or best of seven. And you've got so much dependent on outside factors, you know, the weather, the pitch, the overhead condition. And then you have the toss, the central sort of point, the narr- central narrative point of most test match games. And, and you know, how the pitch is prepared and all of it just factors in to how the, the test match unfolds. And... The fact that it isn't happenstance, and it's not an accidental quirk, but it's the beating heart of the sport. It's its raison d'etre. I mean, if you take, let's say, the 1960 Baseball World Series, the, the Pittsburgh Pirates versus the New York Yankees, you, you have three blowout Yankee victories, and the, the New York Yankees were the dominant team of the time and were very much expected and the favourites to win this. So they won one of the games 16-3. The other one, 10 nothing, 12 nothing, And yet they lost the series, because the other four games of the series were very narrowed pirate victories. 6-4, 3-2, 5 You can have a tennis match that is suspended due to weather, or the fact that it's night, and then they pick it up the next day. But that's relatively rare at the majors in Grand Slam events. But the conditions don't change to an individual. You're still playing on the same tennis court. You know, it's the same for both both players. You know, in football with two legged ties, you know, the away goals rule acts as the narrative arbiter in setting the parameters and how each team should play and the consensus media and fan expectations. If away from home you lose four 0 in the Champions League, in the second leg, you're going to have to win 4-0, 5-0. You know, if, you, if it's a situation where you draw 0-0 at home and you draw 1 all the way from home, that is the advantage. You, you, know, you don't have to win it, but you just have to get an away goal. And I think one of the other elements of test matches that I, I don't think people focus on enough is just how much it is, in a sporting sense, really cruel and unusual punishment. You know, in a World Series, you have back-and-forth advantage, you know, between, you know, your home, then away, home, then away. In a two-legged tie, it's home and away. In in a Test Match Series, and especially if you factor in T20 games and, you know, one-day internationals, you're fully away from home for an extended period of time, you know, months, weeks, months. You can only take a handful of players, you know, but, you know, really maybe 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, only since, you know, the COVID bubble have, have you been able to take sort of 20. And that's really the upper end of it because you've just had a situation where Chris Wokes has spent seven weeks in a bubble and hasn't played at all and has just now gone home for some rest. You know, even in a major international football tournament, you know, the squad is 23. And yet, so what happens if someone gets injured? You have to fly them in their off-season. So they know that they've had a massive long season 
you're at home, you know, maybe practicing a little bit, and then you're dumped on a plane and told to fly halfway across the world, and then you're out there playing for you know England in the West Indies, or in Pakistan, or in Sri Lanka, or in South Africa, or Australia. And whereby the, the home opposition, they can pick whoever they want. It's in season, it's in the middle of their summer. If someone starts their domestic season in the Sheffield Shield in Australia or the County Championship in England brilliantly well, yeah, you can call them up, no questions asked. You have all of these options. Whereby a touring team doesn't have that. You know, touring teams, you know, you have to go where you are told to. So in if, when you tour South Africa, you have to go up on the high belt. You have to basically go up at you know, altitude for one of the test matches, and then the other out the the other test matches you're at sea level, and so there's that differentiation which you're not used to if none of your test match grounds are at elevation. You know, if you go out into Australia, you're going to have to deal. You used to have to deal with the whacker, which is basically a pitch where there'd be cracks. It'd be a fast bowler's paradise, but then you'd have the SCG, which was far more spin. You know that would be would play far more. Generally, sometimes Australia would go with two spinners in Sydney. In other words, it's not as if you play at the same ground. So at least within you know three or four games, you get an understanding of the conditions. You don't get that. You get shunted around the country. You know England will always generally play at Lords because it's HQ, and you play at Edgbaston because that's England's fortress. You have the gabber for the Australians, where they just do not lose until they've now, literally for the first time since 1988, they lost to India, and what was a massive shock to the Australians. You know, the home team in a test series gets to pick what wickets when the test matches. In other words, if England wanted to, you know, they could host their test matches in April when it's cold, wet, miserable, the pitches would seem... And you'd have all of these teams from the West Indies, from Pakistan, from Australia, South Africa, who are not used to particularly cold conditions, and India, then having to basically wear three layers of jumpers. And that would give England a huge advantage. But what you can do, I don't think that a beggar thy neighbour approach benefits the sport as a, as a whole. And I think what's also wonderfully unique is that the way how we, as fans and as journalists, how we cover test matches from a, a media standpoint. So in other words, after each day's play, despite the fact that you've only had 20% of the game and there's far more of the game to go on, you still have a report, you still have analysis. So you'll have the match report, you will then have two or three, you know, in, in an English newspaper, you'll have two or three journalists will usually then have their say on the day. And the, the funny thing is, is that the game's not over. And so any analysis is really, in many ways, a, a guesstimate. And that analysis in of itself is really, to my mind, a fascinating window into the writer's perception, their bias. You know, it's their cricketing ethos and ideology sort of comes out in in those in that writing. So basically, when England do not do well in the subcontinent, it's a well-worn trope of England travails against spin, and it's instantly recognised by the casual fan, and it feeds into you know sort of cultural notions of the Englishman abroad besieged and unmoored. And I think it's 
it, it comes across all of our major team sports. So you look at rugby, if you look at football. And I think it really, I, I've described it in some ways as a, a colonial cultural hangover. Is that with rugby, there's always this image you have of England being comprehensively outplayed by the New Zealand All Blacks. And it's, you know, and if they're playing South Africa or Australia, they tend to be more out-muscled. But I think the All Blacks is the one that sticks in the English sports, you know, the English sports fan psyche. It's swift, it's brutal, it's aesthetically beautiful. And also it's emblematic of New Zealand as a country as a whole, their culture and their ethos. The idea of the All Blacks being essentially the perfect combination of everything New Zealand. And it's so vibrant. And yet English you know, culture and rugby cannot do anything to replicate that level of ball handling, that level of dominance. It's just... It's like watching... I wouldn't say men against boys. It's just like an alien form of rugby. You just can't imagine people in school playing like that. Whereby it is the transitions are so quick. And it... Even if England fans love watching the All Blacks, there is somehow no way that we've ever been able to replicate. Even, even as a poor facsimile, we just can't. It's like, well, that's how they play. That's how brilliantly All Blacks are. We just accept that once every few years we go there on tour, and that's for the British and Irish Lions as well, and you're usually going to get hammered. If you get a win, that's you know, bully for you and brilliant. But it never leads to any kind of substantive change in the way how we coach rugby in this country. You know, with English football, it's always the summer major international tournaments, where you know it's a an England team that is run ragged. You know, with little, you know, it's a classical little tactical, you know, sophistication against these sort of European and Latin American powers, and they always have more imagination and verve. And yet our players always look kind of like, you know, honest yeoman types. They're trying very hard, but they're not able to lay a glove on the oppo. You know, they're not able to, you know, keep possession. And when they do keep possession, it's aimless. They're just knocking the ball to each other in midfield. And they're always seemingly led by out-of-touch leaders. They're always, England's football team always seem to be two steps behind what everybody else is doing. You know, they're not able to stop the, you know, the opposition's you know, attack. They're not able to stop you know, the pace of the French. They're not able to you know, stop the organisation of the Germans. They're not able to match the skill of the Argentines or the Brazilians. You know, England are sort of reliant on set pieces and power. or The idea they, they sort of anoint one star, one you know, player that's going to somehow lift the entire team on their back and take England to victory. There's this sense that England teams are unable to dominate, and yet their sense was that we once were able to. I think there's a kind of fascinating match to the way how some of our sort of historical dramas, um, if you take, you know, the movie Zulu with Michael Caine, if you take the TV series Sharp and the TV series Hornblower. Who all you know, kind of British produce films and TV shows, and 
there's with I'll take Sharp as the, the probably the best example of this, and it's basically based on a set of historical novels by Bernard Cornwell, and the idea is is that it's set in the Napoleonic Wars where England was at war with Napoleonic France. Napoleon was trying to basically stream through Europe, you know, Belgium, trying to invade Russia, you know, Spain, Portugal. You know, was really just trying to have complete you know, domination of the you know, continental Europe and was looking to then kick on towards, you know, presumably invading England. And Sharp is a soldier in, in the British Army. He's from a very humble working class background. You know, his mother was a prostitute and he's basically you know, had to fight to get to where he is in the world. He joins the British Army and effectively, you know, the principle was is that you had, you know, working class, middle class people who would fight and your officers would be from the upper class. So people that would be able to buy in and get a and get a commission to become an officer, to become generals become majors get any kind of level of power in the british army you had to have basically come from some form of money you know some breeding you know that kind of thing and he event he breaks smashes through the sort of the glass ceiling he becomes you know an officer but he's never accepted by the other officers because of his you know rough manners and his his poor background and the, and all the, the the television sort of and they're basically 90-minute feature-length episodes. It's always that Sharp is being held by, by the aristocratic officer class. And they're the ones who always make the mistakes. And, it, you know, he's always having to fight against that. And even Wellington, who's, you know, obviously a real-life, you know, who eventually led to the you know, defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo. And it, because he's Irish and because he came from a relatively humble background, they're always working within that structure. And, you know, with Hornblow, he's middle class, but he's not from a Navy family. And he has to kind of work his way from the you know, bottom upwards. There's always question marks over whether he should be there. And there's always this sense that it's the Admiralty, the Navy, British Navy as a whole, which always seems to allow France to get the French to get the drop on England. And it's always somehow Hornblower and you know, various other kind of characters who then have to, you know, by their own ingenuity, find a way to somehow beat the French. You know, with Zulu, it is simply this, you know, either outnumbered in this unforgiving, hot, dusty, isolated fort, an outpost, and they're beset by the locals. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, in terms of media, in terms of films, television, it's always the sense of, they're always beset by the, the wily locals, and they're utilising unfamiliar alien conditions. And it always seems to basically put the British Empire almost as sort of plucky underdogs against the odds. And it's just fundamentally ridiculous is that you know if you look at you know sharp hornblow and zulu that is a time when british power was at its zenith it was beating napoleon you know in real life in the history of this admiral nelson beat the french you know zulu it, the point is is that the british you know 
had a huge worldwide empire, one of the largest empires in you know human history. And it is entirely ridiculous to have this notion that there was a an against the odds feel to it. And it bleeds into our conception of sporting defeats. There's always this sense that there was there's a sense of loss that there was once a time when you know we were dominant in the rugby we were dominant in the cricket we were dominant in the football because we invented these sports and that therefore that there's some almost systemic problem within englishness that has you know caused this permanent state of decline and you know in if you look at the the way how it's kind of this is affected our politics you know it's created a sort of form of english nationalism the idea somehow that the scots or the welsh or the northern irish were kind of getting more power and getting something you know they were getting more tax money than the rest of england which it, is all kind of ridiculous and then you have you know brexit and the idea that you know the europe and brussels and everything else was really holding us down and holding us back and so when you then take this to cricket, there is a inability to really contextualise, you know, England doing badly against spin. The point is, is that even with the you know the, the best will in the world, you are not an English team is not going to be as adept in spinning conditions as India. You're just not. You know, there are a handful of, you know, county grounds where there is some element of spin. But it is not all year round. Generally, if you're talking about, you know, Taunton with Somerset, you know, what they nickname Hyderabad, it's at the end of the season, if you curate the pitch in the right way, it can take spin. A little bit at Old Trafford, sometimes a little bit at Lord's, but... It's not the same principle. It, you know, having you know, there's you know English Test match players don't play that much county. You know, they don't have the ability to play three or four games at Taunton to basically get some upskilling. You know, the fact is that county games are now played you know, at the beginning of the season when it's wet and a bit cold and miserable, and at the end of the season. It's not producing wickets particularly conducive to spin. There isn't as much high class spin in the county game because you've now, you know, there's a limitation on cold pack players. So you've only got a couple of foreign players. And if one, and if they're not spinners, then, you know, you're really not facing the same level of talent. And the point is, is that, yes, you can say that England in the you know, the third test didn't bat particularly well. Absolutely. But if you look at the situation with the ball, you know, because this is a pink ball, but this is the first time that the you know, SCG, the SG pink ball has been used, it did something unexpected. The fact that they put so much lacquer on the ball to make sure that it doesn't go soft meant that the ball, you know, as far as the players were concerned, the ball was coming onto the bat a lot quicker. And because you then had a pitch that was really within basically you know, one or two sessions of the first day falling apart, it just meant that everything was happening. It was basically very adrenal cricket. Either the ball was doing something, it was doing nothing on the straight, but it was coming on quicker than you expected. And both sides 
basically struggled with it. And so the point is, is that you have to contextualise that if this was an England team where you had Kevin Peterson, Alistair Cook, Andrew Strauss, Joe Root, if you had Paul Collingwood, if you had a massively experienced England, you know, Ian Bell, if you had that kind of batting lineup, you could have higher expectations. Even, you know, Owen Morgan was a when he had his short test career, was pretty good against spin. If you had that kind of one through seven, you know, batting lineup, then yeah, I think you could have a reasonable expectations that you could do better than what the England team did. If you take that batting lineup we had, it's young, it's inexperienced. They are going to struggle in those conditions. That's entirely why the pitch was like that. Mm. And the real question that you you kind of need to ask of that is, then, why did India do that? And I think, yep, uh, there's a certain amount of India not taking chances, I've said, with the World Test Championship on the line. I think it's particularly unfair to basically just, you know, use the England cricket team almost, in effect, as as a bit of a punching bag. Because, you know, you have, obviously, the frustrations of lockdown... And there's just this dis this huge disappointment from you know the and especially because this game was these this whole test series has been on Channel Four. It's been on domestic television. It's the first time since the you know, legendary two thousand and five Ashes that you've had an England Test match that's been on television. Especially also in hours that you could watch it because a lot of people were working from home. So obviously then to have gone from one nil up to two one down, I, I can understand there being a, a disappointment, but I think. You you have to you know, caveat it. It has to be nuanced that, that a situation where Joe Root picks up five wickets for eight runs, considering that he is a part-time bowler, that is not normal. That is not something that you can you know, realistically expect. If you have a test match that barely lasts, you know, pretty much was, you know, it went into the... Th- just about, you know, about, what, 15, 20 minutes into the, you know, third session on day two. That isn't normal. You know, that hasn't happened. You know, that is one of the shortest test matches in history. And I think what I suppose I'd be almost a little bit, I'm not disappointed, but I think what the media, English media specifically, could have done is really ask themselves the key question. Like, can you reverse engineer this test match? And to work out whether you know India had the better of the batting conditions. You know, we are aware that the, the the pitch was spinning. I don't think it was particularly fit for purpose. I imagine because you know again this is only ever the second day night test match in India. I don't imagine when the brains trust between the Indian cricket team, its management, and the ground staff had the expectation that this test match would last two days. They produced a spinning wicket. I don't think their intention was that India would get bowled out for 144. I don't think that was part of the plan. I think there is an element of unintentional unintentional consequences. Hmm. I think that's, it's noticeable if you look at the sort of snap judgments from day one, from the English cricketing media. It was, you know, the scene was ineffective, that they England needed to have got an extra spinner, that the tail was slightly too long. 
and it was a disaster of epic proportions. You know, losing seven wickets for 38 runs, you know, to take 74 for three, which is a relatively decent starting point to 112 all out. And that the ex- expectation that India ending the day 99 for three, that they would post, you know, let's say 200, 250, possibly even 250 plus, And that would leave England scrambling to prevent an innings defeat. The expectation from reading that was not that India were about to be dismissed for 144 all out. With England, you know, at the, you know, at the close of the first innings, that England would be notionally back in that test match. So I thought the key question is, well, did seem fail for England? Well, if you look at the Indian seamers, which is Ishan Sharman, his 100th test match, and Jaspreet Bumrah, they bowled 11 overs, 4 maidens. So basically, for the uninitiated, that's 4 overs where no runs were scored. They call that a maiden. So 11 overs, 45 runs, 1 wicket, and that's 409 and over. So it was basically, you started with the new ball. They managed to get, you know, Don Sibley out to a pretty good ball from Sharma. You know, nicked it off. And... Generally, then the seat, the spinners took over, and that was that for the for the rest of the test match. And yet, if you look at the, you know, England seamers, you know, frontline seamers, you've got Arthur, Joffrey Archer, James Anderson, Stuart Broad, and they collectively bowled twenty four overs, eleven maidens, sixty runs, picked up a wicket, and they went at two and a half runs and over. That's not unsuccessful. If it was unsuccessful, you'd be talking about. You know, them going at five, six, seven, you know, no maidens, no pressure being built, no wickets. That's not bad. And then if you then, you know, bring in the the seam, the spin bowlers for England. You know, they, in the first innings, bowled 26.2 overs, nine wickets, five maidens, 62 runs, 2.32 runs per over. You know, if you're going to sit there and criticise England, you know, on a selectorial basis... Bowling India out, if you'd said that to the British you know, cricketing press, OK, coming into this test match, England are going to bowl India all out in the first innings for 144, every single writer would have taken that as brilliant. They would have assumed it was a seeming pitch and that, you know, Anderson and Broad had got into them and Joffre Archer had basically acted as the enforcer. That would have been the... You know, expectations. Really, the, the if you were going to be hypercritical of the England, you know, bowling in the first innings, it's really giving Ben o- Ben Stokes three overs for nineteen runs. You know, and he in and he was targeted in the first you know over. You know, went for I think it was about ten or twelve, and then sort of the the remaining two overs of the spell, he brought it back a little bit, but still three overs for nineteen runs. It is fairly hefty. You know, if you think that the difference between the two sides was 32 runs in terms of, you know, in the first innings, 19 of them were Ben Stokes, which you didn't necessarily have to. He hasn't bowled much. I don't think he's 100% in terms of his bowling at the moment. But that's not exactly a terrible tactical decision. I mean, the thing is, if you're going to ask yourself, you know, would Don Bess or Moeen have made a difference from the bowling standpoint? Not particularly. I don't see how you're going to very much massively improve on nine wickets for 62 runs from 26.2 overs. I don't think that would massively have shaved it down. You're talking about an outfit that is very experienced, very talented, and very good on spinning pitches. 
you know, maybe Maureen with the bat, but considering how everybody else in the lower order did, I don't imagine that you can guarantee that he would have scored that many more runs. And I think this is when you then go to reverse engineer it. I, th I think you can pretty much work out that to score runs in this test match, you had to be in the top four and preferably batting later in the second and third sessions, ideally, which is what happened for India. So, I mean, if you look at it, so first day, first session, the pitch is starting to fall apart. There's runs for the openers, you know, uh, Zach Crawley gets 53 runs, and that's the top score in the entire Test match for England. Uh, but you, you've they've lost wickets. You know the spin starts to you know it's taking spin. There's extravagant turn, and really by the second session, all hell breaks loose. I mean, after 20 overs of England, you know, batting, the middle order is absolutely decimated. <laughs> And but by the time you get to sort of the the third, you know, the back end of the second session and the start of the third session, there's runs available for the top order. So Rohit gets you know sixty six, and he's the top scorer in the Test match. And if you look at it from then on, so basically no one in the the middle order for either India or England gets really any runs. So, you know, Joe Root, who's batting at four, but if you factor in that Johnny Bairstow at three batted for, I believe, 11 deliveries in the entire test match, didn't score a run, you're really, realistically, you can almost argue that, theoretically, Joe Root was batting at three. I mean, he was coming out very early in the second innings. He's coming out within, basically, the first over. <laughs> With even in, the, even in the first innings... He was there pretty quickly on the scene. And if you then look at, you know, with you know, Rohit, and he, you know, he scores 91 total runs in the entire test match, but he gets 25 out, 25 not out in the second innings. But again, it's batting in the second and third session of the, of both days. And that's the whole point. If you look at day two, you know, effectively the spin wasn't quite as dangerous in the by the about just as the light is starting to fade and the light is taking on which is somewhere kind of back end of the second session and the third session and so really on day two India are batting 90, you know, 99 for three well set as we said to bat England out of the game all hell breaks loose you know no one in the bottom you know Ravi Chandran Ashwin gets 17 runs but none of these runs are particularly no one's in control you know the spinners are completely dominant. You know, even in the, you know, then England are batting again and it's in the second session. And again, it's even worse. All hell breaks loose pretty much from the first over bowled, you know, by Axar Patel. And it's only really when you just about get to the sort of back end of the second session and the third session when India are chasing 49 runs that things start to calm down and there are still runs available. So in the second innings, you know, Shubman Gill gets 15 not out. Rohit gets 25. So really, you know, Shubman Gill gets 26 runs in the entire test matches. One not out, one wicket. Kohli gets 27 runs, you know, in the first innings. Again, he's batting in the third session and he's batting at four. So as you can see, there is a clear sense that 
somebody on both sides was able to get runs. It wasn't the absolutely wasn't a pitch where you, no one could score runs, but realistically, it was only in specific time periods. It was only going to be one batsman, and that's you know, usually you know, laws of average. Even on the worst pitch, somebody will get in. Someone will be informed. Someone will just have on the day a good day. But realistically, if you were going to do well. India had the advantages in terms of, of the batting conditions. And they are, you know, just... You know, in terms of their technique, in terms of their experience, are much better placed to deal with that. England did have, I think, the worst of the, the conditions in terms of batting. Realistically, and I think this is where if England made a tactical error, I would argue that the tactical error really begins with deciding to bat first. If you think that this is going to be a situation where Seam is going to be the what will win you this test match, realistically, day one, bowling in India out for an idiotly you know, small score, and then hopefully the conditions are in your favour and you can put enough of a score on the board to start creating pressure, that was how you were going to do it. But obviously there is that recurrent fear that effectively... England know their batting lineup, and in terms of the options they have realistically on the bench, in, in terms of let's say Rory Burns and Dan Lawrence, both of whom who've been sort of rested slash dropped, that there wasn't a Kevin Peterson coming out who was going to be able to improve the batting lineup in any meaningful way against spin. You know, Dan Lawrence is at the start of his career, even Rory Burns, he's you know, only just sort of it's maybe the sort of second year of, of Test match cricket and first major tour of, you know, the subcontinent. So as a result, there is the, they didn't want to be batting last, and I can understand that, but effectively, if you're going with spit seam, and I think there's also another element that needs to be kind of, you know, really factored in, is that with day-night test matches, because you have the pink ball and the the need to try and keep the ball from going soft and not doing anything after you know, sort of 20, 30, 40 overs. What you have is the idea is that you're supposed to keep a bit more grass on, on the wicket to facilitate that, to make sure the ball doesn't get you know, basically damaged quickly. Now, I think what you've had in this situation was England were, were kind of factoring that in. They thought of the last, the first day-night test match where England, where India played Bangladesh, and all of the wickets were from seam. 19 of them and there was one run out but even that run out was you know with a seam bowler bowling so that's what they thought you know and you know, to be fair you could argue that this is sneaky but india basically you know because you it's you know your ground all of the, the nets where england were practicing gave the impression that the ball was going to do a lot and that's it that's really what england in terms of the preparation for this match they can they their their attitude and their viewpoint is what we see on the nets should be the the closest approximation to what we're going to see on the wicket at the stadium, and there was clearly a complete disconnect, a structural disconnect between what the nets were doing and what the wicket they came up against. The wicket they came up against was massively spin, was a pitch falling apart. You know they were having to work on the footholds, the sort of thing that you'd expect late on day four and day five when you've had a really heavy, very competitive test match. Not you're having the groundsman out there having, because the, the footholds are falling apart, on morning one. 
that is a problem. That is a wicket that is just not up to standard. If you get in a situation where, you know, the only person, only one person in the match, you know, two people in the match got more than 50 runs in total, that is not particularly impressive. If Joe Root, who has managed to get multiple, you know, centuries this year on spinning pitches, manages, you know, finishes, you know, second in the England run score with 36 runs, that's a sign. If, you know, if Coley gets 27, and that's, you know, when the conditions were particularly beneficial to, you know, batting, there is a problem with this pitch. If no one from basically the lower order down, and maybe like, you can argue lower order, maybe Ben Stokes got a 25, but that was in the middle of the second session, and the partnership he had with Joe Root, which was 31, the largest partnership in you know, England's 80 you know, runs, or 83 all out, is, you know, 31 runs, three boundaries, all of which were fours, and a lot of skittish singles. It was a particularly... It was a partnership where they were trying to get as many runs as they could before the ball that had your name on it was delivered. It was not control. Now, if you look at... You know, it, I think that the problem that I say with this test match is, in terms of narrative, in terms of perception, is the idea that it's a 10-wicket loss for England and that India chased down the 49. That look, makes it look like it was relatively straightforward batting for India. I don't think it was. I think a more realistic would have been a couple of wickets. There was a situation where you had a couple of edges that you know went to ground instead of to hand. There was a couple that kept low, and that you know basically India's you know were coming in just at the back end of the second session of the day when things were just about to start improving. But the pitch was now really doing something. But as long as they didn't lose three wickets for no runs. They were going to win this test match. And when you go out for the third session after a little bit of a break, at this point, you know, you can't defend 30 runs and get 10 wickets in India. That's just not happening, even if the ball is doing a lot. You know, because you have to try and take wickets. There's going to be gaps. And the more you know, it basically says have a four, have a six, and eventually England by that point will punch drunk. But I think had India lost a couple more wickets, I think that would have made it a bit more realistic. You know, approximation of how that pitch was playing at that point. And I think the thing I think the thing that's interesting is is that Sri Lanka did exactly the same thing to England when at the start of the year. So basically England had a tour match, two days, but it's an inter squad tour match. So in other words it's one England A, England B, two different teams. But they're not playing the locals. And this pitch was green and it seemed... And that is not a traditional Sri Lankan pitch. And England basically said, yeah, we had our knockabout, our inter-squad knockabout, but that's not what the wicket's going to look like at Gaul when we start the first test. And I think the point was is that England were confident enough because they'd last time they were in Sri Lanka, they'd won 3-0. And the relative weakness of you know Sri Lanka, they, they're a talented side, but... They're not particularly experienced. They're not the same team they were you know, five, six, seven years ago when they had Murali, when they had Rangan Harath. Is that, that, that England knew that it was going to spin and that they would have to therefore problem solve as and when. Whereby I think with this test match, 
I think because they'd seen the writing was on the wall after the the, the second test match when the thing is the, the the second test match was a pitch that spun but not it wasn't as if you just jimmied it just to get a result it was a pitch that suited India's tactics and what they wanted the pitch to do but at the same time England didn't score enough runs and didn't really apply themselves perfectly but that was enough of a warning to know that was how the rest of the tour was going to go out that was it there wasn't going to be a time where I don't think India were going to make the same mistake they did in the first test match the pitches were going to have an Indian balance and an Indian advantage and what I think England were hoping was is that the day-night pitch would be, because of the grass, because of the overhead conditions, wouldn't be quite as spin-friendly. And so that's why they've made that decision. In other words, they've allowed themselves, basically a little bit of wishful thinking was that this pitch should hopefully help us on some level. It shouldn't be an absolute spin nightmare they just didn't imagine the pitch was going to do that and that the game was going to be over within two days and you know partly it's because you had a limited you know sample size is only over the second as i've said second day night test match in india and the realization was is that i think england realized that Either it was going to seem and they would have a chance, or if it spun particularly, that with the team, with the batting line that they have, they just aren't going to realistically win. Which I think then leads on to really the question of Indian benevolence. So what makes in you know the coming Indian cricketing dominance different from previous historical examples of dominant teams so the Australian dominance of the 90s and early 2000s and further back the West Indies dominance of the late 70s and 80s and I think the point is is that the West Indies and Australian dominance was player-led now you could probably argue that Australia's Institute of Sport helped with in certain regards that the Australia and their I suppose their coaching process and their mantra was probably more professional than the other countries were for the broader part but it was mostly player-led it was having Shane Warne, Glenn McGrath, Ricky Ponting, Adam Gilchrist, the War Twins that was really the you know Ian Healy, Jason Gillespie having that kind of depth I mean they you know, shoot McGill was basically their second bolt second spin bowler if they needed you know, having that kind of level of depth, you know, having there was always two or three, you know, Mike Hussey, you know, barely could get into the Australian team in his late twenties. It was only in his early thirties when the Australian team probably went down a notch that he was able to, you know, get into the team. It's that kind of level of depth. As much as you know, having good infrastructure helped. It was just having a great run of players, much in the same way that the West Indian. You know, you had the pitches, you know, their home advantage, you had all the different islands. But for the most part, it was just having, for an extended period of time, a couple of great historical generations of fast bowlers, batsmen, Viv Green, Gordon Greenwich, you know, Michael Holding, you know. But it wasn't financial. It wasn't because they had bigger stadiums, whereby if you look at the totality of Indian success at the moment, 
is all formats, it's finance, it's infrastructure. 75% of all cricket revenue on planet Earth comes from India. You have a situation where you have the IPL as a domestic league that now has a de facto ability maybe to, I wouldn't say dictate, but alter multiple countries' international schedules. Those These countries are saying, well, our best players are going to go out to the IPL for the money and for the glamour and the opportunity to really, at the highest level of domestic cricket in the world, there's no point us putting a test match on in the middle of that. We will not have our best players. And that's the same for England, that's the same for the West Indies, it's the same for New Zealand, even for Australia. You have to basically work out that March, April is generally, and a little bit of May, is generally not the best time to schedule international cricket because you will be competing with the IPL for viewers and you will be competing with them for players. So, so you don't lose your key players. The point is you have IPL teams establishing academies in the UK. Australia didn't do that in the 90s and the 2000s. West Indies certainly didn't do it in the you know, 70s and 80s. You know, that is a level of dominance and power that you're basically saying that if there's some kid that's going to be amazing at T20 cricket and it's going to ha- if it happens in Surrey there's just as much chance that the Rajasthan Royals will, will benefit from that before Surrey County Cricket Club. I mean if you get to the point where it's a choice between going to the Surrey Academy or the Rajasthan Royals Academy that's incredible. Even when county cricket in the 70s and 80s were at its zenith you didn't have a situation where you know, Surrey had a you know, was able to scout the the best Indian colleges or the best Pakistani players. You know, you just got whoever was you know happened to be good at international level if they wanted a bit of you know money and the chance to play in England. It wasn't actually we can get these players even before you know they make it into the international team. That is really where the difference kind of lies. And you've you've had COVID. You've had the fact that. The increasing reliance, really, of all the boards, cricket boards outside of Australian India, uh, sorry, Australian England, all the other cricket boards are to some degree reliant on revenue from Indian tours. In other words, the money you make from India touring your country and you going to India is what is keeping the lights on. You know, the point is, if you know India aren't playing Pakistan in bilateral cricket, so they're not playing them in one days, T Twenties, they're not playing them in Test matches. I mean, that there's political elements to it, there's safety elements, you know, I'm not debating the, the merits of it, but the point is, is that the ICC, the International Cricket, you know, does not have the ability to say to India, you will play Pakistan. It is just an acceptance, because really, if, pa- if, if, if India decide that they're going to, you know, take their ball and go home, that's really it for International Cricket. There is, you know, it would become a lot harder to keep the lights on if India don't play ball. That That's just the, the, the simple facts of the matter. I mean, the thing is, you've got a situation now where you know, India have none of the issues that are affecting in terms of money that everybody outside of England and Australia you know, are having. They are not strapped for cash in the same way. You've not got a situation where it's comparable to England, where you, England are still trying to reverse the decline in, in, of cricket's relevance to the wider sporting public, the decline in participation, the decline in players coming from state schools. 
So in other words, just regular, ordinary schools. Where England are getting their talent now is increasingly public schools, which, don't ask me why, but in our language, a private school is called a public school. Don't ask. But the point is, you, you have the difficulties of scheduling the 100, where England, are the England Cricket Board is throwing hundreds of millions of pounds to try and get the game back into, you know, regular people's lives. You have the T20 Blast, you have the County Cricket, you have 50 overs. So you're trying to fit all of this and International England Games into one summer. And you don't have as long a summer in England. You really have you know, June, July, August, a little bit of May. You can play in April, you can play in September, October, but it starts getting difficult. It starts getting cold, you have days rained out, it's not particularly pleasant. It's not the greatest form of cricket. And that's the point, it's without damaging one or damaging all. And it's the difficulties, you know, the county games are being pushed to the margins of the season. It limits the development of spinners and fast bowlers. Whereby the difference in India is that because of the long summer, you can play the IPL at the end of the season with no problems. The weather is still fantastic. You don't have games rained out particularly. And it doesn't have that same problem. There isn't that scheduling issue. You can, because of the size and the playing, you know, the how many people playing the game, you don't have to necessarily worry that, you know, by having three different tournaments that you're going to run out of top level players. You know, with Australia, you're dealing with declines with cuts to the budget due to COVID. You have issues with regards to the television rights being renegotiated. You have international games behind a paywall, and we've seen it, what happens in England, that can be incredibly damaging. So once you factor that all in, and I mean, this is if you if I had to make a guess on what the the pitch for the the fourth Test match is going to be, knowing that all India need is a draw to get to the final, I would imagine it's going to be a road. It is going to be very flat, and it will be a situation where if India you know win the toss, they could put up five six hundred, and then that means that they're in the driving seat and that the time will run out on the game, whether England will be able to then bat for 600 with all of the issues they've just had in the last two test matches, I think is unrealistic. You're going to have an England team, some of whom who are about to be going home, who are going to be sick of the bubble, who know that they're not going to get to the World Test Championship. You know, they are, and the thing is, when you're in a bubble, there is no escape. You can't go out. You can't visit anywhere. You are just basically, for the most part, stuck in your room thinking about cricket. I can imagine a situation in which England... Yeah, the fight has just been kicked out of them as such. And the, the point is, if you do a road, if it's completely flat, and if it doesn't, ta if it's not as outrageously you know, spin-friendly, is that that then calms down everyone who's complaining about, you know, the pitches being basically jimmied for India's advantage? I mean, that's how I see it. Because, I mean, why would you get a result pitch... And then suddenly England, let's say, produce a miracle performance and draw two all. And now it's Australia versus New Zealand at Lords in the final. And India have missed out. I think that's the, the fear that would be going in there. And so really the question is, is that what all of this says in terms of, you know, India's improving cricketing infrastructure, improved facilities. It's a washing cash. It has, you know, it's hugely popular. You know, you have unimaginable depth in terms of the, the team. Well, do you need to have such an aggressively partisan approach to the pitch curation? 
does it benefit the sport as a whole to have India so dominant at home that even if they lose one test match, that suddenly you have to have this huge overreaction that effectively damages the game. People are less likely to bother watching England tour India if they are going to get hammered 4-0 every single time. And even if you get close to being competitive, the, the, the rug gets pulled out from under you and then it's a pitch where you can't you know, compete. Because really, you as much as you want to live in a world in which you can get players upskilled to dealing with spin, it's you just need quality players. You need your Kevin Petersons, your Ian Bells, more than you need you know, experience on spinning pitches. In the end, do I think that at the current moment, the England top six is comparable to the England top six that won in India in 2012-2013? No, they're not. One is much more experienced and is just better. They have better track records. They are just generally brilliant cricket players, regardless of whether you're talking... Regardless of context regardless of the pitch Ian Bell scored runs all across the world Kevin Peterson could do amazing things all over the world Andrew Strauss could Joe Root was the one who broke into that team and you that is four brilliant batsmen and the thing is is that if you've got a situation where you have Ravi Chandra and Ashwin who's now the second quickest to reach 400 wickets after Matara Muralithra well do you really need to have a pitch that spins that outrageously? Does he really need the help? Does Axel Patel need that help? Does Washington Sundar need that help? You know, does... Does Virat Kohli, you know, to be a, you know, a successful Indian captain at home, does he constantly need pitches that are, you know overtly spin friendly does he need to have that level of advantage coming into a test match and that kind of psychological advantage does he need that with the talent he had i mean did the 80s and 90s australian so the 90s australian team did they always have pitches that completely bounced that were outrageously australian i wouldn't think so even you know the west indies yes their pitches did quite a lot but they were still able to win all over the world without you know, having that level of sort of home advantage. And the thing is, is that the beggar I neighbour approach, the thing is, just as Test cricket was getting away from the fact that it was overtly home advantage to the point where people would really you know, think pieces were coming out in the cricket media saying, well, will you know, team away wins become just complete rarities? We had just got away from that. And yet now... If you're going to try and, you know, if you're Australia, if you're New Zealand, if you are England, if you're assuming that for the next 10 years, when you talk about the World Test Championship, that India are going to be in the final, and therefore you're only competing for one spot, you're going to start jimmying the pitches. You are going to start, you know, doing everything you can to get these wins, and especially against some of the lower-ranked teams, your Sri Lankas, your West India, West Indies, your Bangladesh... And it suddenly just completely damages the sport. I can understand why Sri Lanka tried to do a bit of game theory with England. You know, England's budget, England's playing facilities is appreciably better than Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka are, relatively speaking, you know, you know they are getting there, but they are not 
you know, competitive with the top four teams in the world on a regular basis. And I think coming back to what I was really saying earlier in the podcast about sort of England, English media, culturally, in terms of dealing with sporting setbacks you know, on, on foreign land, is that there's, there was a sense of English media biting their lip and trying not to basically appear to be kind of arrogant, colonial English oppressors. The ones who are saying, well, you've, the only reason you won is because you jimmied the pitch. That's unfair. That's sneaky. And all of the... And really ploughing up a lot of kind of animosity. Because there is an element... You know, India, in terms of cricket, has always had this situation where they've been looked down on in a way they were you know clear they were a major part of cricket but they were ne- you know cricket was run from lords that's the whole sport it wasn't run from asia because that's just not how things were done they weren't particularly listened to and i think there was a someone there was a article in the Guardian, and it's about this um, cricket his, this historian who often writes cricket books, and he was talking about how, you know, when the West Indies were dominant, you'd have a situation where if Mike Gatting got a century, or you know, David Gowell, one of the England players, got a couple of centuries against the West Indies, they'd be lionised for how well they did, and yet the world didn't really care that Sinil Gavaskar had multiple centuries against the West Indies. And that was it. There is an element of you know, cultural bias, you know, of structural racism that has always that has been in cricket. And now the point is, is that you now have a situation where I do, the English media are trying, in a way, not to you know appear racist or anything like that. But I think what they're ignoring is the the, the larger picture is that. It's not criticizing the, the the pitch for the third test is not colonial arrogance, but it's a realistic evaluation of where India currently sit in the cricketing, you know, ecosystem, and their and how cricket's future is lining up in the short and medium term. It's going to be cricket is an Indian game. It's you know power is going to be in India. Its teams are going to be the most successful teams, more often than not. And so as a result, you now, you know, it is a question of Indian benevolence. How much do they want to sit there and have an element of benevolence? How much are they willing to, you know, play Pakistan? Because of the money that that would bring into the, you know, Pakistan cricket board. You know, how much are they willing to, you know take home advantage are they going to get to a situation where they could literally go years between draws or even just a single test match loss at home because they do have that capability now it's like one of the the elements that i think was sort of noticeable was you know because of covid you have the situation with that instead of having neutral umpires you have home umpires and that hasn't been any problem and it's been nice for a lot of these umpires to you know finally you know stand in a test match at home and you know there's there's good things about that but what you've had in this test series is is that you've had several decisions by the the third umpire where it gave the impression that if it was you know 
in India's favour, you would check five or six replays from different angles to just make 110% sure. And yet if it was in England's favour, you would just, it's a cursory one check. Oh, well, that definitely bounced. And then suddenly your review is over. Instead of going, well, actually, I'm going to check three or four different things. Just even as a tick box exercise to give the impression that it's everything is you know completely fair. And that's happened several times in, in the, one of the test matches. They did the review too quickly. They didn't check all the angles and the Indian player was out. And it's that kind of principle is that India are in the position where they can take a huge amount of power. Whether that's, you know, de jure power or de facto power, it's there. It is their sport now. And we are all, you know, part, you know, are therefore playing their game now. But the point is, is that what that therefore needs to be is, is how are you going to use that power? Is it just going to be simply for your own dominance so that the IPL completely, you know, becomes almost bigger than international cricket in of itself. Is it a point where in you know international cricket will basically be India winning and everybody else competing for second place? You know, with you know not to be not to be cliched in the you know the Spider Man says with great power does become does you know, great power comes great responsibility. And that's what India are going to have to, you know, have that debate internally over exactly how they are going to use this power. And whether it is going to be just simply so that India are entirely dominant or is there going to be a sense that India can use this power for positivity? Because they have done in, you know, helping Afghanistan in hosting their test matches and so that, that they can use all of this soft power to improve the sport of cricket rather than just simply you know then simply just dominate the sport and that's really where cricket is at a crossroads now and Indian cricket has to now decide how it wants to play the game thank you for listening